Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Parshas Bay, and we are continuing Hilchas Yichud, and I believe this will be the final part of Hilchas uh, Yichud that we'll be discussing. So last week we discussed how the heter of Pesach Pesuach L'Roshus Harabim works, leaving a door open to the street when it can be relied upon. And this week I want to discuss two different heterim. What are the two different heterim? One, having someone come in and check up on you, which would be known as Yaitzei V'Nichnas. When does that work and how does that work? And if does that work, actually, we should begin with that. And two, does it ever help to lock yourself in a room in order to avoid problems of Yichud? So let's start with the first one. What is the concept of Yoytzev and Nichna, someone coming in and coming out, checking up? Where do we find it? So we find it in Kashrus. Uh, more specifically, it's uh, applied, in the, the actual case where it's applied is leaving a non-Jew around wine, which is not in the Vushal. So as we know, if a non-Jew swishes around an open bottle of wine, which hasn't been cooked, it, is, it becomes also because of Stam Yen and you can't drink that wine. Now, although we don't think that they serve idols today, Chazal nevertheless prohibited all wine that could be used for that purpose regardless of whether or not they would do that. So it's us. The key here, though, is that the battle has to be open and the guy has, has have had a chance to switch it around. So if a guy is carrying a closed bottle of wine around, it's not a problem. But what if you leave him or her alone? Do we worry that he will open it and switch it? So yes, we are worried. However... He doesn't want to get caught in the act of doing so because he knows or she knows that they shouldn't do that. So if you come in and come out unpredictably, they will be scared to pull off any of those kind of tricks. And that's the concept of Yetzir Nichnas in regard to Kashrus. That's why it helps. Going in and going out unpredictably prevents the non-Jew from doing something that will make our wine unkosher. Truth is, we apply this regularly if you ever have a maid who cleans your house or a cleaning crew or, or a nanny and you leave them in your house, it might be that all your wine is mavushal, so that's fine as far as the wine is concerned. But if she will use any of your pots or if she uses you know, your, your, your utensils and she cooks with them, they will become usur, they will become treif, either because she might use treif for food or simply because whatever she cooks turns into bishal hakam, often, which is treif. So how do we know she didn't do that? So obviously you have to let her know she shouldn't do that. And assuming she knows she does, she's not allowed to do that, so the only reason why she won't is because there's a concept of yaitiv and nichnas. You go in, you go out, and she won't want to do anything while there's a possibility you will catch her in the act. And therefore it's always important, by the way, not to tell the maid that you're leaving for such and such amount of time and not to tell her when you'll get back. Just tell her you're leaving and you'll be back. And even if you want her to lock up, so don't tell her, oh, you know, I'm not coming back, so lock up. Just tell her, in case I don't get back before you leave, just lock up. Never clearly tell the maid that you're not going to be around. And even though she might know you go to work, but there's always a possibility that you might have to come back unexpectedly for one reason or another, and that is sufficient as far as Yaitzav and Nichnas is concerned when it comes to Kashrus. Now, it's important to understand when it comes to Yichud, Yaitzav and Nichnas does work, but it does not work in the same way. What works and what's sufficient as far as Yaitzav and Nichnas when it comes to Kashrus is not sufficient when it comes to Yichud. 
And the reason is, is because Yichud is, even a, a minute or two is already enough to be a problem of Yichud, I think two or three minutes. And also, Chazal understood that there's a very big Yetzirah involved when it comes to this concept of Yichud, and therefore, a simple Yetzirah is not sufficient. A simple Yetzirah means that there's a chance that you or whoever it is might come in and check up or in this situation in Yichud, there's a chance that someone might come in and find you. By, by, by Yichud, that's not enough. It has to be more than a chance. It has to be that you're really, you know that someone can come in, and there's a, a reality that someone will walk in. <clears throat> we find that when, if someone is in the house and is sleeping, we talked about this um, earlier, that one shimer, if they're sleeping, they don't help, even though they could wake up. For a typical Yitzhah that would be enough. But for Yichud, that's not enough. So if you want to have someone who will be, if you have a, you're stuck in a situation of Yichud, and sometimes none of the Hatayim work, Pesach Basuach doesn't work, Baila Behir doesn't work, or any other kind of Hatayim you might have is just not applicable. So the only last option you might be left with is have someone come and check up on you. And that's a great idea. If it's, if, you know, if you can find someone who's able to do that. But the only thing is the person actually has to do it. They have to actually come in and check up on you. And you have to know that they will really do it. And don't tell them, oh, you know, you could come. They actually have to come and knock on the door and walk in. And then it constitutes uh, a real Yetzirah So you need to have a real actual Yetzirah in order for it to take care of the problem of Yichud, and then that is something you can rely on. And it's very, it is a very helpful hatter, because in other situations, that could be that's the only option you have. Now let's discuss the hatter of locking yourself in a room. Now this, though it might sound extreme, it is very relevant. Recently I had this Shiloh with a family that had a border, an older girl, and there was a constant Yichud issue with, with the father, the husband, but she was staying in the ba- basement, and there was an option for her to lock herself in. So whenever you know the the wife had to be out, they didn't have to constantly come up with some kind of a plan for the husband to be there and leave, or she to leave, or the the, the, the girl to leave. Instead, she just went down to her room and locked the door, and that was fine. So why does that work? So this is this it only works in a, with a couple of um, conditions. Condition number one: it'll only work if the place where the woman is locking herself into has bathroom access. Obviously, if it doesn't have bathroom access, then it's a very—it's not really a good solution because if she has to go to the bathroom, she's going to have to leave and unlock herself. So it has to be a place where you can actually remain for a given amount of time. So the number one is that the room or part of the house that you're locking yourself into has to have bathroom access. And number two, this only works for a woman to lock herself in. It doesn't help for a man to lock himself into the room. It only helps for a woman to lock herself into the room. And the reason is because I understood that a woman is less likely to unlock herself and go out into a situation which is a huge problem, whereas a man, Chazal, let's just put it simply, Chazal were much more worried about the man than they were worried about the woman. So the, for a man to lock himself in is not going to help anything. He'll just unlock himself and leave, whereas a woman, if she's locked in, that keeps the distance between her and the man, and that will, that will resolve any possible problems. Uh, alternatively, what you could do is that the woman can lock the man in. So like if there's a lock from the outside, she could lock him in. That would help. It's a little creepy, but that would help if, if that is your only option. So, to summarize, 
the heter of locking yourself in works only for a woman to lock herself into a room, and it only works if the room she's locked herself into has bathroom access. This also is very applicable. For example, let's say you have a repairman coming to the house, right, and your husband is out of town, or for whatever reason you can't rely on Bile of the Ear, and you can't rely on Pesach Pesuch, often that that's not always an option. So what do you do? So you can have this option. You can go. You can have him let him in, let him do whatever he needs to do, and while he's there, you go lock yourself uh, in your room. And, you know, your, let's say your master bedroom has a bathroom, lock yourself in your room, do whatever you need to do over there until he's done, and then you let him out. So that's a good way to take care of that problem if you are stuck in that kind of human situation. And again, going back to the first hetter, if you want to rely on the hetter of Yetzirah Nifnas, that can only be relied upon if it's a real, real Yetzirah Nifnas, the person that you are designating to come actually has to come. And if it's for a longer period of time, they have to come more than once. Like for three hours, they should have come at least twice. Moving to Parashas Bay. The end of Parashas Bay introduces us to the mitzvah tefillin. And I want to discuss this mitzvah, even though it's a mitzvah that primarily men do, but it has a tons of relevance in its message, and its message is really universal. Everybody has to know the message of tefillin. Now, what's interesting about tefillin is the Pasuk doesn't say all that much. The Pasuk just says we should tie these words, and those are the words written in the parasha, to our arms as an ice, a sign, and to our heads as a zikaran, a remembrance. What does tefillin look like? What do they contain? That's totally Tarish Abalpah. Fascinating thing. Without Tarish Abalpah, without Gemara, we would have no clue that tefillin are a box made out of leather, that they're black, they contain verses written on parchment, and so on. The Torah itself gives us very little information. Tarish Abalpah gives us highly specified information down to you know, the, the, the measurements and everything is very highly specified in Parish of So what do tefillin look like, and what do they contain? Tefillin are two black boxes made of hardened leather, one for the head and one for the arm. They both have straps, which are called resuas, which we use to bind them to our heads and our arms. The placement on the head and on the arm is highly specific. On the head, it needs to be on above your hairline, but lined with your eyes, aligned with your eyes, and the back of the straps on the head need to be above the cavity in the back of your head. This tefillin on your head correlates to the mind and the seat of memory and is meant to focus our mind on the service of Hashem. The arm tefillin need to be above the elbow on the upper part of the arm on the muscle where it simultaneously represents all the actions that we take, and it is also right, lined up, aligned to our hearts, to focus our hearts and our actions to the service of Hashem. What do tefillin contain? Both the shal rush, the head tefillin, and the shal yad, the, ha- the arm tefillin, they both contain four parashas from the Torah, four paragraphs from the Torah. In the shal yad, the ones that we put on our arm, they're all written on one parchment, which is, all, which is rolled up, and placed inside one square box. In the Shal Reish, the one that goes on our head, each parsha, each paragraph is written on its own individual parchment. And the box itself is divided into four separate compartments. If you were to like separate them, they would look like fingers. And they're just compressed together into a square. And each compartment gets one parsha on an individual scroll. The order of placement of these scrolls in, the, in their individual compartment is actually a machlekes, and hence you might have heard of Rashi tefillin and Rabbeinu Tam tefillin, different kinds of tefillin that different people wear, and that is, the question is just what order should the parashiyas be inserted into the tefillin? What parashiyas do we insert into the tefillin? There are four, right? What are the four? So two are very well known. 
We say them every day, and we say them twice. Shema and Vahafta Ace is one parsha, and Vahayim Shemaya is the second parsha. So we understand what those parshiyas are doing in Tefillin. Clearly, those are the basics of Amuna, the basics of what we believe, the basics of being a Jew. And is all about So it's basic, the basics of the a Jewish belief and what we are and who we are and who we serve and what we represent. However, the other two parshiyas are the interesting ones. They aren't as well known. They're the final two parshiyas, the final two paragraphs in this week's parsha. They are known as Kadesh, that's the first word of the first one, and Vahayikiviyacha, that's the first word of the second one. Kadesh and Vahayikiviyacha. What do these parashiyas talk about? Both these parashiyas mention Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, but essentially they both revolve around one mitzvah. Both Kadesh and Vahayikiviyacha are really discussing one mitzvah. Surprisingly, it's not the mitzvah of Tefillin. You know which mitzvah it is? It's the mitzvah of Bechor the mitzvah of sanctifying the firstborn. Kaddish, there are the words, Kaddish means to sanctify. Kaddish li kalbuchar. It begins with the mitzvah to sanctify every firstborn baby, both human and animal. It then diverges into various mitzvahs associated with Pesach, it, both to mention Pesach every day, eating matzah, not only chamek, telling the story of Pesach by the Seder, and so on. But the next parasha, Bahayiki Viyacha, deals exclusively with the mitzvah of Bukhar, telling us the details of how it's performed and introducing us to the concept of pigeon haben, right? That's the one thing about Bukhar we still do. Pigeon haben, to redeem the Bukhar, redeeming the firstborn and offering a certain amount of money in his place. The mitzvah of Bukhar. So what's the significance of this mitzvah? And what is it doing in our tefillin? Truthfully, what does tefillin come to teach us, both men and women? It's important to understand that the mitzvah of tefillin essentially the way it's written in the Torah, is to wear tefillin all day, not just by davening. The Torah doesn't make a special time for tefillin, and it could be that even by night there's an obligation to wear tefillin, which we don't do. But regardless, essentially the mitzvah is to wear it all day. Why don't we wear them all day? Because wearing tefillin requires a purity of thought and a purity of body. And we aren't at the level where we can maintain that kind of devotion all day. So we only wear them during davening, where ostensibly our thoughts are focused on Hashem, and we've been careful to be physically clean and prepared for davening. Great tzaddikim, like the Gra and other special tzaddikim, they wore their tefillin all day. It's, it's, it's interesting to note, the Gemara says that wearing tefillin is compared to the Kayan Gadol, wearing the tits, the golden crown, engraved with Hashem's name. The same level of devotion and concentration that that required is required of all of us while wearing tefillin. That's how holy they are. The Hirsch has a beautiful explanation of the significance of the mitzvah of Bukhar, what it teaches us, and why it's in our tefillin. We must remember that originally, the Bukharim, the firstborn, were the ones meant to serve in the Beis HaMikdash. And possibly, when Mashiach comes, it will revert back to that. In any case, at the time that these parishes were taught, there was no concept of kahuna. Aaron wasn't chosen yet. The Bukhar represented each family's chosen one to serve Hashem. The importance of this was, Rav Hirsch explains, because Klai Yisrael was divided into Shavatim. Each Shevet had its own unique form of Avedis Hashem, and they would soon enter Eretz Yisrael and settle in different places, with minimum connection to one another. The service of the Chayrim had a powerful unifying effect on all of Klai Yisrael. Each and every family had a Bukhar, who they would send to serve in the Beis Hamikdash together with all the other Bukharim from all the other Shvatim. 
And this demonstrated that despite the differences, everyone has one unifying goal, the service of Hashem and sanctifying His name. However, Rav Hirsch clarifies one more point and is both amazing and it's illuminating. The Pasuk also commands us to redeem every Bukhar, Pidyan Haben, the mitzvah we do. So now we give the money to the Kayan. But at the point that this Pasha was taught, there were no Kahanim. So I imagine the money went to the base of Mikdash. So what was the point of this redemption? What does it mean we were redeeming a Bukhar? What were we redeeming him from? So Hirsch explains that the concept of is that without redemption, the Bukhar would dedicate his life to Hashem. He would leave his family, take up residence in the Beis HaMikdash. Truthfully, Chana promised Hashem that her child would be given to Hashem. And that's precisely what her son Shmuel did. He left his home and took up residence in the Mishkan under the tutelage of Eli HaKain. He lived his whole life there. But Hashem doesn't want that. Hashem, he wants us to redeem the Bukharim so that they stay home. He doesn't want them to take up residence in the Beis HaMikdash. Why? The verse says, because Hashem is demonstrating that the service of Hashem isn't unique to Bukharim. It's something that the whole family shares. The ultimate service of Hashem is not in the Beis HaMikdash, but rather in the Mikdash Ma'at, in the holy home of every Jew. Not by offering sacrifices and pouring wine on the Mizbeach, but with the daily routine of life that every child goes through, he is serving Hashem in great holiness as if they are in the Beis HaMikdash. Hashem wants the Bukhar at home to demonstrate that to the whole family, that that's the holiest place where he can serve Hashem, and likewise, everybody can serve Hashem. And that's why this parasha is so integral to Tzillin. We were at Tzillin just as the Kayin Gadol wore the tzitz, with Hashem's name engraved upon it, reminding him not to forget for a second the holiness of his position and his task. He's serving the King of Kings. So we wear tillin in our homes, surrounded by everyday things. And ideally, tillin were are supposed to be donned in the home, and then a person would walk to shul with them on to demonstrate that here, in our home, is where we serve Hashem with the highest level of devotion and kedusha. So yes, we can't wear it all day because we're not on the level, but it doesn't diminish the holiness of our task and the connection with Hashem we are meant to have every second of the day. And Avrush puts out one more beautiful thing. There's a very significant difference between the laws defining a Bukhar, firstborn, when it comes to the rights of inheritance. Or familiar with Bukhar, by the Torah's laws, is entitled to two portions of inheritance. But that is determined by who is the father's first child. It could be that the mother has already had children in a previous marriage, but this is the father's first son, that's a Bukhar for inheritance. But the Bukhar for service of Hashem is determined by the firstborn of the mother, even if the father has other children. He explained that this is because the Kedusha that is attributed to Bukhar, the ability to serve Hashem and bring sanctity into the home is a power given to him only by a holy Jewish mother. And that is true of the Avodah Hashem that all of us perform in our homes every day. The Kedusha is brought into the house by the mother, by the wife, by the, the woman of the house. Have a good night and a wonderful Shabbos.